Welcome to Cato Audio for October 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Julian Sanchez discusses the federal court finding that a controversial surveillance program was unconstitutional. Tom Fiery discusses masks and mandates in an era of COVID-19. And Reason Magazine's J.D. Tuchile discusses the likelihood of a contested election outcome, no matter who wins. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Since uh, early March, when this pandemic hit, we have seen massive uh, adjustments uh, that the private sector has had to make. We have seen massive uh, missteps in the public sector response. You could argue that the only reason we really have a public health community uh, and some of these uh, agencies that are focused on communicable diseases is for events like this. Uh, And to talk about uh, what policy, uh, what some of the better practices for public policy will be going forward and for future pandemics. I'm joined by Cato's Ryan Bourne, Jeff Singer, and Gene Healy, uh, who uh, all contributed mightily to the the output of the new Pandemics and Policy uh, essay series that the Cato Institute published as of this recording uh, this week. Uh, Gentlemen, welcome. And Gene, why don't you explain to us uh, why this particular project was necessary? Well, sure. Yeah, we uh, there have been three major crises in the uh, 21st century. Uh, the, a lot of interesting times in 9-11, the financial collapse of 2008, and now COVID-19. And in terms of uh, lives lost and economic damage, the third great crisis of the 21st century really dwarfs the the prior two. So it was obvious that, uh, you know, war and national emergencies uh, tend to be the health of the state. You tend to get uh, a, a dramatic expansion in the size of government and the concentration of federal power. Um, and so one thing to be very concerned about was whether the COVID-19 crisis would follow the same pattern. At the same time, uh, a crisis of this magnitude, there's understandably a desire for uh, uh, and a need for a government response at some level. Uh, There's a public responsibility here. So just as this thing had transformed our our daily lives and sent us all home, you know, we started thinking about ways to harness all the energy at, at, at Cato. People got to work uh, from their makeshift offices in their basements and uh, elsewhere, uh, addressing a lot of these issues. Uh, but we started thinking about a uh, some pl- putting it all in one place uh, and, and having an all Cato project that would stand as the institute's best thinking on the crisis. And we started thinking about the the longstanding Cato Handbook for Policymakers, which has a particular format, meaty but digestible essays with uh, action items for lawmakers uh, right up front. And uh, so we, we took that as a model. And uh, But instead of releasing all the chapters simultaneously in a bound volume, uh, we decided to uh, uh, do to publish them serially online uh, as needed with uh, 
accompanying fancy graphics and multimedia features. And that allowed it to be fast and flexible. And also, I have to say, uh, uh, unlike the handbook, which is, you know, at a bound volume, this product is pretty gorgeous. Uh, the uh, Our web design and art departments did a terrific job. And uh, this is going to allow us with the 10 essays we just released. You know, I'm very pleased with how the, those turned out, thanks in part to Ryan and Jeff. But it's also going to allow us to uh, address issue by issue, you know, new policy proposals, ways to re- return to normalcy, ways to avoid this crisis making permanent uh, and destructive changes in American life and law. So, uh, you know, that's we, we, we've just launched it. And uh, I think going forward, it's going to be a very useful uh, product for Cato. Ryan, just as we began uh, adapting to this pandemic, you and I spoke for a Cato Daily podcast. And one of the things that's really stuck with me is that in normal recessions, stimulus makes sense. And in this recession, even though people are calling what a lot of the spending, the trillions of dollars in new spending that is going on, they're calling it stimulus, but it's not. It's still relief. So uh, give us a sense of of why, uh, at least economically speaking, this recession that we are deep in uh, is so dramatically different. And what are the implications of that difference for policy? Well, I think that's exactly right, Caleb. And um, obviously, primarily, this is a public health crisis, but one of its first order effects was a dramatic shutdown of the economy, initially led, it has to be said, uh, by changes in, in private behavior. People stopped going to places where they'd have to socialize. Um, people stopped going to restaurants and bars, understandably didn't want to become infected with what was thought at the time, um, a potentially uh, deadly disease for people across the population across the demographics of the population. Um, Then, of course, we had the government lockdowns. And the whole uh, explanation for those at the time was that given the uncertainty, uh, it was thought to reduce transmission of the virus significantly um, in the absence of any medical innovation. Um, A whole range of networks uh, of people and relationships that arose through economic activity had to be suppressed for a time. Um, Now, it wasn't entirely clear what the aim of that lockdown was. It didn't ever seem that policymakers were willing to follow through and and suppress the virus down to such a level that we could introduce a a test and trace regime. But what we've had since then, really, is we've been bumbling along and we know that the virus is out there. We recognize now that the lockdowns were an incredibly crude and economically destructive uh, means of suppressing the virus. And in the absence of uh, any robust test and trace system. Uh, they don't actually uh, improve matters in the longer term in the sense that the virus is still out there percolating. So this economic phenomenon, I think, now is really about we've adjusted our behavior in a whole range of ways to the presence of this virus and its existence and our knowledge of it. And as a result, a whole range of economic activity is still deeply suppressed relative to normal times, in inverted commas. Again, entertainment, restaurant spending, a whole range of other socializing uh, industries. And then in a whole range of other industries, we're living through what I describe as the inefficient economy. 
there's a whole range of things that businesses are having to do in order to sure, ensure the safety um, of their employees or customers, which are making them just less efficient at delivering products and services than they were before. So as a result of those two combined factors, um, we're seeing the economy operating somewhere between 3 and 10% uh, of activity lower than we would expect it in ordinary times. And as you say, it's very, very difficult for policymakers to overcome that by pulling on the traditional levers and, and uh, in, in particular, the traditional Keynesian levers beloved of members of Congress, because uh, you can't force people to go out and engage in certain types of economic activity if they uh, are unwilling to do so because of the risk to them or the risk to others. So we have had dramatic um, relief spending. I do think it's best described as that. The aim initially was to provide this relief to households and businesses to kind of tide them over uh, through the periods of lockdowns and suppression of, of activity beyond it, beyond it, so that um, the downturn induced by governments and by that changing behaviour then didn't spiral where people started worrying about their jobs and so slashing their spending dramatically. To that extent, some economists would argue it's done its job. Um, but that doesn't solve the underlying problem. The underlying problem still is that it, with the existence of this virus, um, there's a whole range of inefficiencies and a whole range of sustained falls in demand in certain industries that mean it's very difficult to get back to where we would have been in the absence of a medical innovation. I'll just add one final point. Um, when we talk about this as an economic crisis, we often focus on what's happening to GDP and we focus on the congressional response. But I would argue this has been an economic crisis in another sense, in that on a whole range of issues, uh, even around the public health policy response, policymakers have failed to think like economists. And what do I mean by that? Well, quite early on, there was a major decision for the, the FDA to have to make uh, in terms of um, giving authorization for testing. Uh, the FDA at the time said that it didn't want to, um, you know, wave through tests quickly because it wanted to ensure that they were accurate. Now, an economist looking at that would have recognized that the benefits to having a test, even if it was perhaps a bit less accurate at a time where we really didn't know much about uh, the prevalence of the disease, would vastly outweigh the costs of having an inaccurate test because the alternative to an inaccurate test at the time was having no test at all or, or one test that was faulty. Um, and you look through the public health issues and on topic after topic, um, there have been instances where policymakers have failed to think like economists. And I think that almost uh, is responsible for more of the failures that we've seen than worrying about what they've done in regards fiscal policy. Uh, to you, Jeff Singer, on that note of uh, this difficulty that the FDA and other ex executive agencies have had in terms of uh, getting testing widely available, allowing the private sector to do what it does well uh, in the face of a time-sensitive problem, uh, are agencies due any grace for the fact that this was such an evolving problem or did we know before did did we know beforehand 
that uh, the way the FDA, CDC, uh, HHS broadly was going to respond to this crisis was just going to be insufficient. Well, we knew that uh, beforehand, but I think the whole country hopefully learned now uh, that a lot, of, a lot of the what I would say embarrassing uh, res- uh, lack of response of the FDA to uh, need for quick testing. Uh, and our, our sclerotic regulatory regime uh, has ha, has been respo- was responsible for getting uh, delaying the the response, um, and I'm hoping that policymakers have learned from this and need to uh, revisit all of these regula- regulations uh, and attempt to uh, revise and reform them. For example, as Ryan was saying, the FDA essentially gave a monopoly to the CDC to develop a test. The CDC developed a faulty test, uh, and by the time that it became apparent, they suddenly had to play catch-up. And it wasn't until actually mid-March that the FDA said to the states, you governors, uh, you approve whatever tests you want to be allowed within your state's borders. You could do that independent of us. And also, at the beginning of March, the FDA said to a lot of of labs and and, uh, – pharmaceutical developers, testing developers, go ahead now and get those get those tests out there and just keep us in a loop. Well, this is what South Korea did in the beginning of this thing, because South Korea learned back uh, and when they had the MERS uh, epidemic uh, a few years back, they, they, they made the same mistake. So they set up a, a, an apparatus where the next time there's a public health emergency, all of the private sector actors can get right to work, just keep the regulators in the loop, let them know what you're doing so they could monitor and constantly share results and data with them, but get out there, get it, get it going. Our FDA was acting, I, I, I often use the analogy that, that ironically, the, the country that's supposed to be the beacon of free markets acted like East Germany. And the test that it produced through the CDC's monopoly was the Trabant because it, it, it didn't work and now we had to start all over again. But there's opportunity if, if, uh, if policymakers want to seize, the, you know, learn from this and seize the opportunity, there's opportunity for really good reforms. For example, the FDA tacitly recognized that states should be able to make these decisions. I would argue that uh, we should pass legislation saying that not just in, in this emergency and not just when there's an emergency, but we should allow states to decide which tests, in fact, which medications should be allowed within their own borders. So that we have we could have two tracks going. We could have the FDA track, which is national, and we could have the state track. So that, that, that therefore patients and healthcare practitioners within, let's say, the state of New York could decide whether they want to use something that's New York approved or FDA approved, but they have that option. In addition, um, when we realized in late February that we had uh, that we had one test that wasn't working, um, there were several countries around the world who were using multiple tests. Why didn't the FDA, if they were going to allow governors to make decisions in their states, why didn't the FDA say, "What? Uh, it's okay for those tests that are being used in several other developed countries, apparently successfully. You can use them here now." Um, so. There's, a, there's an ar- argument right there for uh, legislation. Actually, was uh, that's been introduced and, and sitting around for several years that would allow uh, reciprocal 
uh, recognition of, of drugs and tests that are allowed in multiple other countries. You could have a, a designated list of developed countries that have a reputation uh, for quality assurance. And any any test or drug approved in those countries could be approved here as well. It just could say not approved by the FDA, but approved by, let's say, France. Uh, Gene, uh, to the extent that the the White House, the executive branch of the federal government, has been dealing with uh, protests against police brutality, uh, he seems not to have appreciated very much the division of power between states and the feds. Has he done a better job in with respect to the pandemic, appreciating that the police power resides in states? Well, I think he's been all over the map on on that. Uh, you remember a few months ago, uh, uh, President Trump at the uh, Daily Coronavirus Show uh, said that uh, you know that uh, that when you're the president of the United States, you have you, the authority is total, and he claimed. Uh, power to uh, force states uh, to reopen their economies, you know, over the uh, objections of their state governors and state legislatures. Uh, For the most part, that hasn't happened. A lot of that has been bluster. Um, But uh, I, you know, I, I don't think I I would give him high marks on any aspect of this crisis, uh, particularly public health communication. I think one of the things you notice, though, when uh, you're looking at how we got here, there's a very good assessment of that in the uh, Pandemics and Policy series by uh, Charles Silver and David A. Hyman. Uh, and the title is A, a Case Study in Government Failure. Uh, it has a nice treatment of the, or the botched rollout of testing. Um, but there's this pattern where uh, Every time there is a major national emergency like this, it's the it's the point at which libertarians learn that they were running the government all along, uh, because there's always this outcry from the intelligentsia and various political leaders that uh, you know that it's libertarian. It's the American heritage of of limited government that has gotten us here. Now, if you actually look at what happened. Uh, which with the botched testing rollout, uh, it's precisely the opposite. As Jeff says, it's a a case of uh, over intrusive, overweening government. And, you know, early on in this pandemic, there was this running sort of conventional wisdom refrain. uh, There are no libertarians in a pandemic. You saw that a lot over Twitter and in the Atlantic Monthly. I think this project shows that there are libertarians in, in a pandemic, that libertarianism and uh, small government conservatism have a, a lot to say about how we got here and how we can get out. Uh, it's funny when, when we, we initially thought about this project and about basing it on, uh, in part on the Cato Handbook for policymakers, I went back and looked at the Cato Handbook editions that were released in the wake of the last two big 21st century crises, uh, 9-11 and uh, the 2008 financial collapse. And in each case, in the introduction, uh, Ed Crane and David Bose are writing about these calls, uh, you know, after 9-11, people said, you know, this is the the end of libertarianism, this is the end of small government, uh, conservatism. Uh, this September 11th had proved the necessity of a muscular central government with sweeping powers. 
Then again, in the 2009 edition, after the finance, in the middle of the financial crisis, they note these these calls and the this sort of recurring, greatly exaggerated uh, announcements of the death of uh, small government classical liberal philosophy. And then the same thing has happened here, obviously. Uh, so in a sense, you, you feel a little bit like Sisyphus pushing the, the rock up the hill. But in a sunnier way, uh, you know, in a more positive uh, sense, uh, what you also see is that this sort of lame, reflexive punditry uh, this uh, knee-jerk, uh, there must be something, this knee-jerk conclusion that there must be something wrong with uh, limited constitutional government uh, never t- tends to pan out because the facts tend not to support it, and they certainly don't support it here. Uh, Ryan, when uh, new unemployment assistance, pandemic unemployment assistance numbers came out uh, this week, and of course, we're recording this for the October edition of of Cato Audio, something notable was that a massive share of these unemployment assistance claims were coming from California. Uh, And I I think that's notable in that pre-existing restrictions on prices on wages, this pandemic turned those pre-existing uh, regulations something into landmines. I mean, California may be a, 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 an extreme example with uh, their uh, rules governing uh, freelance workers, but uh, certainly there are states that ha- have a lot of laws on the books that are meant to control wages and prices that have exacerbated a lot of the economic pain that uh, individuals and families and businesses have felt because of this pandemic. Yeah, I think that's right. And it kind of picks up on a theme that um, Jean was just talking about. I don't think any of us would argue um, that as libertarians that government has no role in infectious disease control. You know, this, to a certain extent, this is one issue where you would imagine that government would have a role if in providing guidance one of the reasons this has been so interesting from a libertarian perspective, however, is that it, it's both shown some of the big structural failures of government that make us as a society less resilient to these shocks. Um, and some of the response is a kind of litany of, of government failure, failure of governments to um, have the, the right information, unintended consequences, the role of vested interests. Uh, think about how airlines were able to get their own uh, ring fence bailout, for example, um, that highlight some of the big problems that government has in ordinary times. And as you say, one of the things that we've seen in the past um, five years or so is huge increase in in minimum wages across the country. I think there's now 52 different um, localities that have uh, higher minimum wages than their states, and many states have been in- increasing their minimum wages much higher than the uh, federal level, which hasn't changed since 2009. And you know, in the boom years, um, when demand is growing, businesses are expanding, um, some restaurants, some other businesses, retailers that perhaps are a bit less efficient and um, you know not on top of their game, uh, they survive as a result of the dynamics of the business cycle. Um, they can find that they can pay the extra uh, pay at that time because of growing demand for their products. But when a crisis like this hits, 
um, we see big adjustments in wages and prices. This has been incredibly disruptive. We saw plunging prices for flights, uh, plunging prices um, for restaurants initially until many of them then worked out how to do uh, takeout orders. We've seen big increases in prices, of course, uh, not not just of medical products and things related to the pandemic, like hand sanitizer and face masks initially, but also things like marinara sauce, for example. Um, and exactly the same, one would imagine, is true of underlying labor markets. We're seeing big shifts in demand, and we're also seeing um, some businesses find it more difficult to supply as a result of safety measures that they need in order to uh, encourage customers back in or um, social distancing requirements within their premises. And these regulations, whether it be price or wage controls or really generous unemployment benefits, one impact that they have is to stop us as a society adjusting to the new realities that we face. They put um, sand in the gears, uh, grit in the oyster from us moving uh, towards a situation where we adjust quickly. Um, and I think one of the consequences that we're going to see of the very, very high minimum wages, particularly in um, sectors that remain depressed, is that unable to to cut kind of hourly pay rates, you'll see businesses cut pretty dramatically some of the other um, non-pecuniary benefits that they give to their employees. And in situations where they expect that demand's not going to pick up um, anytime soon, this will exacerbate the already huge job losses that we're expecting to see. All right. Jeff, at, uh, when it comes to public health, uh, what have regulations brought uh, with respect uh, at the state level? Well, uh, just as they have I- impacted economic activity, they've impacted the, the rapid and uh, effective movement of healthcare personnel to areas in need. Um, because we have state licensing laws, these provide these uh, create barriers to the movement of of doctors, nurses, all sorts of other healthcare personnel. So, in the early days of the pandemic, several the governors of several states, now most of them by executive order, suspended licensing requirements and basically said, if you have a license to practice in this field in whatever in whatever state you're from, we'll recognize it. Come here, we need your help. Well, that's a tacit admission that these are these create barriers. Um, the other thing that happened is telemedicine is a technology that's actually not that new, and it's been around for quite some time, but it never really developed in the healthcare sector to the extent that it could have, and to the extent that these kind of things are developed in other sectors. Why? Because of licensing laws. So in every state, a physician is allowed to practice telemedicine only with patients in the same state in which the physician is licensed. Well, of course, most this was suspended during the course of the pandemic. But all of this goes back to the old old uh, status quo ante once the pandemic is over. So what we learn from this is we need to, uh, now states do under the constitution have the authority to license activities within their own borders. But uh, starting with Arizona and now several other states, uh, a few years ago already passed legislation saying that if you have a license in another state, then you can will recognize your license in our state. Unfortunately, in all those cases, they require you to actually have a permanent uh, location in the state in order for that to happen. What is, all states could do is pass legislation recognizing licenses in other states and not necessarily requiring that you have to 
establish uh, a domicile in that state. Sort of like with driver's licenses. When I drive from one state to another, the, the state recognizes my driver's license. I just have to, of course, abide by the rules of the road in that state. But I don't have to get a license in that state in order to drive my car across the border into that state. So states have the ability to do that. And on a federal level, um, Congress does have the ability, for example, when it comes to telemedicine, and I would also argue short-term uh, in-person care, like, for example, um, if a, a doctor is what we call in our field locum tenens, a fill-in, where they have these agencies that actually place doctors for a few weeks at a time or a few months at a time in remote locations to staff clinics, and these doctors move around the country. Well, uh, a, a case could be made that under the commerce power of Congress, Congress could pass a law saying that in those instances, the locus of care is not uh, the state in which the recipient of the care resides, but the state in which the provider is licensed. And that way, uh, you're, you're, the federal government is eliminating some, eliminating some of these barriers to trade because the irony is that right now, I can go to another state to get health care from a doctor there, but that doctor then can't return to me in my state to follow up on that care because that doctor has a license in my state. So it's, it's only a one-way thing. makes no sense. All right. To you, Gene, uh, there are a number of essays. Uh, walk us through a, a few of the other topics that people will find in this Pandemics and Policy uh, series. Sure. Uh, well, there are several different uh, kinds of essays in there. Um, there are a few big picture chapters that uh, you know, lay out a framework for how to think about the role of government uh, in, in a crisis like this. Uh, one of them that I think is particularly good is uh, a chapter called When and How We Should Trust the Science by uh, Cato's Peter Van Doren. Uh, and it addresses these uh, calls to just follow the science as if uh, public health expertise dictates all of your policy choices. Uh, Peter does a excellent job uh, laying out how even in areas where uh, the science is fairly clear as to cause and effect, um, it does not by itself dictate any particular policy choice because other values, uh, values uh, uh, respecting freedom of association, liberty, uh, your ability to, uh, well, for example, there is no scientific answer to, uh, you know, what sort of risk of contagion you should be willing to uh, incur uh, to to see a dying grandparent in the hospital, for example. And moreover, Peter uh, talks a little bit about how, in this case, in the case of an emergency, um, emerging public health crisis with a novel uh, a virus. Uh, you're really dealing with a, with a great deal of scientific uncertainty. So that chapter doesn't tell you what to think about all of this. It doesn't have, unlike many of the other chapters, it doesn't have uh, particular policy prescriptions per se, but I think it gives you a good uh, framework for thinking about this. There's another chapter by uh, Ilya Shapiro on state police powers in the Constitution that uh, I put in the, in the category of a big picture framework chapter uh, outlining how the public health powers of state governments are quite broad, but not unlimited. Um, 
I've already mentioned the Silver and Hyman chapter, which is does a good job of showing how we got here and the uh, uh, sort of masterclass in government failure that led to the botched initial response to the pandemic. Uh, there are other chapters that uh, are about avoiding major uh, policy disasters. Uh, Dan Eikenson and Simon Lester uh, have a chapter about the growing backlash towards globalization and international trade. Uh, Julian Sanchez and Matthew Feeney lay out some principles for contact tracing, for technology existing, assisted disease tracking that, uh, if followed, would not allow the kind of data collection and retention that can be abused. And then there, uh, there's, there are quite a few chapters that have a more positive agenda going forward, not just about avoiding errors, um, but about making things better. Uh, Mike Tanner has a chapter on an inclusive post-COVID recovery uh, that treats some of the issues that Ryan just brought up a, a, a moment ago, where things like minimum wage laws, but also uh, the Tanner's chapter deals heavily with uh, zoning and uh, occupational licensing, uh, that the sectors of the economy that have been hit hardest uh, by the uh, economic slowdown in the wake of the pandemic uh, are also, their recovery is hampered, things like overbroad occupational licensing, and uh, that tends to hit uh, the poorest and most vulnerable workers the hardest. So, uh, and we'll have more coming up. Uh, we we uh, will have a chapter about uh, calls for a new Cold War with China using the COVID crisis as a pretext and quite a bit more. So uh, I, I think uh, I encourage everyone to check it out. I think it's a great product. All right. Uh, Cato.org, Pandemics and Policy, Jeff Singer, Ryan Bourne, and Gene Healy. Thank you very much. And of course, our work is ongoing. Uh, the Cato Daily Podcast has been has done uh, many, 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 many episodes on this subject and its various dimensions. You can check all of that out at Cato.org. A federal appeals court has found that the National Security Agency's telephone metadata program was unconstitutional. The program was shuttered years ago as largely ineffective, but for the person who warned Americans that their rights were being violated on an ongoing basis by the federal government, Edward Snowden, he says it's a vindication. Cato's Julian Sanchez spoke with me for a recent Cato Daily podcast about the case and if it carries implications more broadly. This appeals court ruling is being cast somewhat as a vindication of Edward Snowden, who revealed the NSA's bulk phone uh, data collection. So what did this appeals court say? And do you feel like it is a, a vindication of uh, Mr. Snowden's efforts to tell us about it? Yeah, I mean, there's a, a strange irony in the result of this case, because the um, the appellants, Basali uh, Moalin, uh, who was convicted in 2013 of uh, providing uh, material support to the terror group Al-Shabaab, uh, had challenged his conviction on the grounds that uh, information from the NSA bulk program was uh, uh, used as the basis of uh, subsequent warrants that showed that he was sending money. Um, 
and this should essentially re require his conviction in 2013 to be to be overturned. Uh, and he ultimately lost. His challenge failed, um, but only because essentially the court said uh, the information from this NSE bulk program wasn't useful, really, after all, that that, in fact, um, having reviewed the classified information, um, the the FISA warrants obtained to wiretap Moaline and his associates um, were not in any important way based on information from the NSA bulk program. Um, and that's, I think, uh, significant because this was really the one remaining case um, from the initial claims about this program and it was disclosed um, where it seemed like, well, you could argue there was still some utility from that that now defunct program. Um, you know, initially when the Snowden story came out, when the the, the bulk telephony program was disclosed, uh, we heard that you know dozens of of terrorist uh, activities had been disrupted or foiled um, because of information from this and other programs, um, which you know is like saying your cancer was cured by. You know, magic crystals and chemotherapy. Um, but uh, when independent reviewers looked at this, they found none of this really stood up. But the the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board reviewed, uh, you know, that program and and came to some pretty hostile conclusions about its legality, um, but and and also about its efficacy, saying essentially, essentially, they, they in almost every case they looked at. Um, there was no unique intelligence value provided by um, this dragnet program that had swept up hundreds of millions of Americans' telephone records um, without a warrant or probable cause. Uh, and the one exception that the the board mentioned was, well, there was this case of Vasali Moaline where it seemed as though, based on public uh, testimony from FBI officials and reports, that um, they had sort of identified him as a, a person of interest initially, after having initially had him on their radar, after having investigated him years earlier, um, that an NSA uh, program connection, an indirect connection between Moaline and an Al-Shabaab telephone number uh, was uh, sort of the key to restarting that investigation. And what the court essentially says here is, uh, we looked at the classified evidence and that's not the case. And to the extent that public statements from government officials um, have given a contrary impression, um, that is not true. Um, and so ultimately, Moaline doesn't win his challenge because they say there is no fruit of the poisonous tree in your in, in your particular case, um, because actually, even in the one case that was sort of left as maybe the one time this bulk program was useful, um, that that defense was incorrect. It was not essential to uh, putting the FBI on Moalim's uh, trail. Um, so maybe more interesting is is the uh, legal consequence. So they say, for that reason, because actually this wasn't useful, actually it didn't taint the rest of the investigation and the prosecution, um, we don't review or overturn your, your conviction for providing material support to a terror group. Um, but uh, they do nevertheless conclude first that uh, the program was unlawful. Um, Remember, this was based on an authority under Section 215 of the Patriot Act to collect uh, uh, information, tangible things, essentially business records, uh, that are relevant to an authorized investigation. And agreeing with a lot of other legal scholars, 
uh, who've looked at this and the Privacy Civil Rights Oversight Board, um, the court says, well, look, the statute says this is an authority to get an order for records relevant to an investigation. So clearly what Congress contemplates here is there is a specific investigation, a specific national security investigation, and the records that you're allowed to get with an order are records with some specific link to that particular investigation and the facts of that investigation. Um, and if Congress had you know, wanted to say you can get records potentially useful for any number of future investigations, they would have said that. Um, but the way they wrote the statute, they said, no, there's a nexus to um, some particular investigation, uh, presumably that has its own predication, its own um, you know, basis. That there's probable cause to think an actual crime or other misconduct is going on. And so the, you know, the idea that and relevance is, of course, a very low standard. Um, so you might be able to get quite a lot um, based on some link to an investigation. Um, but it wasn't carte blanche. It wasn't an invitation to get everyone's phone records because they might be relevant to something in the future. Um, and that would just sort of make a joke of the law. So they held that but said, no, but it didn't end up tainting the investigations. And maybe most interesting, um, they, they suggest but do not actually hold that in addition to being unlawful, um, because you know, it just clearly did not comply with the terms of the statute, um, that it may also have been unconstitutional. Uh, and this is significant because it is, it is a, a further sign of the deterioration of the uh, you know, quite, quite harmful third party doctrine, a legal doctrine going back to a series of cases from the late 70s um, that essentially says you have no Fourth Amendment rights in information uh, about you or your communications that is held by third parties. So your bank information, uh, the phone records your phone company has about you, the browsing information that your internet service provider might have about you or that platforms like Google and Facebook and, and Twitter might have about you, um, except for the contents of your communications. Um, so later, later rulings and statutes have protected content, but any other information they have about you is uh, essentially information you've given up your Fourth Amendment rights in. And that uh, was essentially a doctrine that even at the outset, even when it was first handed down, a lot of legal scholars found uh, pretty troubling. Uh, and that as technology has evolved, has, has created essentially an enormous loophole in the Fourth Amendment because enormous amounts of very revealing information um, can therefore be obtained without fulfilling the Fourth Amendment's uh, requirement for a particularized warrant based on probable cause. So the court suggests that there are problems with the so-called third-party doctrine, but they do not hold that it is a problem? That's right. Uh, and you know the way courts normally operate is they're not going to decide a constitutional question if they don't have to. Um, so this is an instance where, one, they're, they're already saying this program was unlawful on statutory grounds, but they've also found that ultimately Moline is not going to get the relief he wants um, because whether it was unlawful or not, um, that is the, the the program that got this telephone information, it was not important to the warrant that was ultimately obtained. So the, the, the evidence that was introduced to convict him was not tainted by whatever illegality was involved in obtaining this telephony metadata. And so if it's not going to make a difference, you know, courts courts tend to essentially not make pronouncements about um, 
about constitutional issues that can be avoided. So they go through a kind of interesting discussion of why the third party doctrine um, is, is problematic in the modern context and why the holdings of Smith v. Maryland, which is the case that's seen as establishing the third party doctrine, uh, don't fit the facts of uh, Moaline's case or of you know, modern telecommunications more generally very well. Uh, so they point out that so Smith is a case involving some very limited information about an obscene phone caller, essentially. Um, just the, the, the barest possible information about the fact that a call was connected between, or the call was placed from one number to another, not even whether it was connected. And you know, they point out, look, there's a lot more information in modern telephony records. There's actually a, a huge amount of detail um, about um, the endpoints of that communication and you know how long the call goes on and other details about how that call is routed. Um, so it's much more detailed, but also that, you know, interestingly, analytic capacity has changed. So we have a lot more ability to extract uh, revealing and sensitive information from telephony metadata by analyzing patterns. And that, that makes it relevant that this was a bulk program. That is to say, um, in one sense, right, Moline can only assert his own Fourth Amendment rights. Um, so the government wants to say, well, it doesn't matter that this was a bulk program that got hundreds of millions of people's of information without a warrant. Um, that doesn't make it any more of a, a Fourth Amendment violation of Moline's rights. And what the court uh, says is, well, no, that's not quite true, because the fact that it's a bulk program means that the information they got about Moline is actually much more revealing. Because when you have everyone's records, um, you can look at much larger patterns and therefore uh, not just gain information about, uh, you know, the specific communications Moline engaged in, but how they compare to or how they fit into um, you know, the context of a social network that he's part of. Um, you can draw, you know, inferences about how different someone is from the baseline of, uh, of, uh, 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 of the data you're looking at, that having all this other information um, makes the information you have about an individual more sensitive and more revealing. Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. So many of the decisions that go along with living through a global pandemic critically hinge on the risks and rewards that each of us face in our daily lives. And appreciating that fact is critical to understanding both individual trade-offs and just who should be making decisions about those trade-offs. Tom Fiery is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and managing editor of Regulation Magazine. We talked about how economists approach questions relating to communicable disease. When the notion of wearing a mask in public, and not specifically in public, indoors, uh, in mixed company, uh, became uh, the advice, and it quickly became a culture war issue, I thought, well, look, if the st state is going to mandate this sort of thing, uh, give businesses three options. Masks required masks optional, masks prohibited. And uh, if you want to have your culture war, you go right ahead, but you have to tell your customers up front 
that uh, this is the policy and whatever the policy is, we're going to enforce it. Um, and and you're, you're working on a paper that basically details you know, another element of this, and that is the fact that there are inherent trade-offs in mandates. There are inherent trade-offs in, uh, for individuals, individual businesses, and individual people that are not immediately obvious right now. So uh, detail that for us. That, that's a great uh, point. You know, your, your intuition, why can't we give uh, places options? And just as long as they tell people before they come in what the option is, we can sort into the, the places we want to go. In, in fact, uh, if people visit uh, Cato.org and, and Google my name, they'll find that I've argued something similar for smoking. Uh, tobacco use policy. But I think COVID is uh, significantly different. Uh, for one thing, it is a community spread disease uh, that can kill and that can do so, and you can contract it, you know, very easily, uh, you know, simply by being exposed, you know, maybe before you realize that the danger is in the, in the room. So yeah, you're you spreading walk- it when you don't know you have it. Exactly. People don't know. And you don't know if other people have it. Uh, and like you said, people themselves don't know if they have it. You walk into a restaurant, it says, you know, masks uh, optional or masks prohibited. Um, uh, you know, you're taking a risk. But suppose you walk into say, into one that says, you know, masks required. Uh, but you walk in and you see someone's being careless. You know, they've got the nose out. They keep pulling it down. You know, you know, some people seem to enjoy almost walking in and creating confrontations, even if it's private property. And, you know, once you're exposed, it's too late. So, you know, that was one thought I had as I thought through this. A, a second one as I thought through this is, you know, we libertarians are about the market. And I mean the market in the rich sense, you know, the Greek sense, you know, it's not just where we buy and sell, but where we do all sorts of community activities. It's where we come together as different people to exchange. And right now, even voluntarily, the market is taking a beating. People have simply pulled back their economic activity because they're afraid of this disease. They're afraid of their own economics. Um, and you know, so they're saving money. And because of that, our market is suffering and will continue to suffer until we get this disease much more under control. So, you know, as I worked on my paper, I thought about two kind of uh, exemplars and tried to think, where does COVID fit with this? And one was the tobacco products in private property. The other was blackouts during World War I and World War II, where you, you're turning your lights off pretty much to protect your neighbor more than yourself, because bombing at that time was never precise enough to hit the light. It hit everyone around the light. And it, it just struck me that this seems to be much more a case of of the blackouts in World War One and World War Two, where we're trying, you know, we're trying to protect the whole community and we need community action. And then there's one other bit of this answer um, is simply wearing the mask itself is really not, it doesn't strike me as a very high cost uh, thing. You know, we're required to wear all sorts of other articles of clothing that, you know, are, are relatively uncontroversial. Shirts, you know, shoes. Right. You know, and, and I'm not about to go, you know, walking through someone's food at McDonald's with my shoes on or off, um, but I'm required nonetheless to wear them. And no one considers that controversial. So why would, hey, put this cotton mask over your face to protect others from whether you have the disease? And now we're finding more and more evidence that the mask actually even protects the wearer moderately well. Um, so 
it seems like a very low cost for a very high benefit. Namely, we get our market and our society and our freedom back. What are some of the trade-offs uh, here that we, you know, because you mentioned this is a, this is a problem that if not everyone is doing it, and so that's a collective action problem. Uh, and even if we accept the notion that there may not be a role for the state here, uh, informed consumers being able to make choices is as important as ever. Right. You know, we, I guess, you know, before we can dive into anything, we have to recognize, you know, the big, the big policy matter, which is that this is a classic negative externality. You know, even we libertarians recognize negative externalities. And for those of you who might be new to the terminology, an externality is either a cost or a benefit to some sort of an activity that gets foisted on someone who didn't voluntarily agree to it. So if I say, take my garbage and throw it over my my uh, fence and into my neighbor's yard, I've basically foisted a negative uh, externality on my neighbor. Uh, COVID is a negative externality. I can, uh, even unknowingly, again, uh, you know, people seem to be most contagious before they even realize they have the disease. I can you know, foist a potentially deadly disease and, and certainly a, a harmful disease on someone else um, without their agreeing to, uh, to, you know, to to the danger, uh, without them maybe even knowing it and without me even knowing it. So we have to balance our costs and benefits and try to reduce this negative externality. And we know the problems with masks. They're uncomfortable. You have to purchase one. You have to clean them perpetually, you know, for them to stay, uh, you know, stay comfortable. And then there's, you know, the basic thing that we libertarians and, and I think human nature in general, we just don't like people telling us what to do. And I think that's actually a fairly healthy, uh, uh, you know, intuition to always be kind of skeptical when someone tells us what to do. But in this case, it seems to be a good time to push back against us because the benefits are so much larger and, and the costs seem to be very small. So, uh, you know, when, when uh, actuaries and economists tally up costs and benefits from some particular mandate, um, when you have somebody like Joe Biden saying, governors should be requiring people to wear masks outdoors. Well, that's doesn't that might change people's behavior if they feel that it's they, they could be credibly uh, caught and fined or, or something like that. Um, and there is at least some evidence that vitamin D might be particularly helpful in uh, fighting or at least allowing the individual uh, systems in our bodies to fight. COVID-19 and maybe wearing a mask outside tells people, well, I think I'll just stay inside. And when you, when you tally, if you tallied all that up, there might be some uh, costs there that we're not easily able to perceive. That's right. And one of the, you know, what we want are solutions. The, the term, the trendy term right now is keyhole solutions. That is uh, uh, policy solutions uh, or even private decisions that very tightly focus in on the problem, but don't have a lot of, of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, side costs that, that we could avoid otherwise. So we could say, okay, everyone, you know, to, to fight this thing, we could lock down the entire city. I'm not proposing that, but someone could. Well, there would be an enormous amount of costs to that. Would you rather do that or just say, hey, while you're out, 
try to stay a couple meters away from someone else and wear a cloth mask. Well, that's that's a lot lower cost uh, to just simply do that. And in exchange for that, you get a number of, of benefits back, like simply being out, going to the store, enjoying sunlight, getting the vitamin D that might help us, uh, you know, better fight this off. So again, you know, it's, you know, libertarians stand on principles. God knows, uh, you know, I make many principled stands, but at some point there's also uh, uh, decisions you have to make pragmatically, that is weighing costs and benefits. And and usually libertarians are especially good at that. We really do think through costs and benefits. You know, we do recognize things like negative externalities and we try to find key whole solutions to address them. And in this case, I think simply just saying, you know, wear a mask and, uh, you know, socially distance will be extremely effective in fighting this, uh, this battle. In fact, you know, to give people a sense of what my, my broader paper, which, you know, should be out here in a few weeks is about, is it's about looking at what limited government can do to fight COVID-19 versus, you know, all the other things that people have been calling for that are not limited government uh, to fight COVID-19. And it points out that actually the limited government tools are extremely effective and low cost, whereas a lot of these other things that we have been hearing, or, or at least we heard back in March and April and May, proved to, to not be so effective and to be very high cost. On the one hand, you have uh, people like Joe Biden uh, running for president, and it should be noted is in the prime risk category for uh, a fatality from this illness. And then you have governors like uh, Brian Kemp and Doug Ducey of uh, Georgia and Arizona, respectively, uh, actually prohibiting local communities from setting their own rules, which as a governor, you know, they certain cities exist at the pleasure of states. Uh, they have that authority. But how do you evaluate uh, those decisions? Those decisions are baffling. Now, you are correct, uh, uh, spot on, in fact. It's an important uh, point here in the United States that local governments exist, uh, you know, under the charity of, of, of the state. It's just the way state constitutions are set up, that states grant power to the local governments. But as libertarians, we are believers in subsidiarity. That is the idea that government policies are best that are implemented as close to the public as they can be, because that way, if it's a local government, they can be more responsive to what the local people want. And they can also tailor uh, their policies to what the local people want. Whereas the further up uh, the uh, power, uh, you know, uh, further up the the power structure you go to state level, to federal level, you lose, uh, you know, you lose such local control, such, such direct input from the public. So it was really, puzzling to see uh, 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 Ducey and Kemp uh, make these decisions and take away uh, the, deci- the the ability to make these decisions on the local level, where the public could very clearly tell uh, the, you know, the local politicians what they want. And that's important, you know, especially in this, because the United States is so varied. You know, we have very rural areas, very uh, uh, urban areas. Uh, we have, uh, you, know, you know, all sorts of uh, uh, different activities that different people engage in in different places. Um, so you could tell her things. Tom Fiery is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and managing editor of Regulation Magazine.
there's a non-zero chance that the election this year will not just be close, but contested by the loser, no matter who wins. And it's not clear how that fight will pan out. J.D. Tuchile is a contributing editor at Reason Magazine. We talked about the years of fighting, risks of interference, and, of course, various conspiracy theories that have infected our discussions about this election. When we talk about uh, the integrity of the 2020 election, and it's just it's it continues to be bonkers to me that that is a discussion that that needs to be had. What are the aspects of it that uh, concern you most? I think what we're looking at is the unwillingness of the two major political factions in this country to accept loss um, and to uh, accept the legitimacy of a win by the other side. Uh, we've reached a point where our country is, well, big parts of the country, certainly not the whole thing, but big parts of the country are divided into two main political factions. They despise each other. They live largely separate from each other. They have different values, different lifestyles, and they uh, view each other not just as opponents within a legitimate de democratic system, but as enemies. And uh, no one can really afford to lose a major contest to an enemy. So uh, the stakes are very high. Practically speaking, what does that mean when when it comes to like what when it comes to the mechanics of an election? What does that mean? Practically speaking, well, there's there's an awful lot of tradition involved in accepting a loss in an election. Um, a lot of it is simply uh, we have a custom of simply saying I won or I lost at the end of an election. That's not always the case. Um, there are plenty of countries where elections are commonly contested. And there's a real possibility we're about to join the ranks of those countries. So all those little banner republics that we used to make fun of, that could be us this November. We could end up having not just a drawn out count, but a refusal by a big chunk of the country to accept the outcome. To the extent that this uh, refusing to accept an electoral outcome, uh, I can remember election night uh, 2019 here in Kentucky, where the governor of Kentucky stepped onto the stage and said, hold on, folks. The numbers were basically in. And he said, hold on, folks. I'm hearing word of improprieties uh, around the state of something has gone wrong. Something uh, is not being counted that should be counted. Do you expect that this year? I think there's a very high likelihood of that, especially since we have a president who has been beating the drum about how unacceptable to him um, how easily finessed, supposedly, uh, mail-in ballots are. In the midst of the pandemic, mail-in ballots, postal ballots, look like a relatively safe way to conduct an election that doesn't get people uh, crowded into polling places, doesn't have them lined up. You fill out a sheet of paper, you send it in. And the president is already warning his supporters that an election held that way is potentially illegitimate, that the ballots can easily be uh, gamed, and that the outcome can't be re uh, relied upon. Now, I'll turn around and say that his opponents have also been beating the drums about foreign interference in our elections for years. Uh, the Russians in particular. Um, so both sides have set themselves up with an excuse for questioning the outcome of the election. And we do have a complicated process. We, we don't have one election. We have 50 elections that are conducted according to the rules of 50 separate states. And it really could get messy. A lot of those states are not accustomed to, to conducting mail-in elections. And uh, New York has already given us kind of a demonstration of how badly wrong that can go, where it took them a long time to settle um, the outcomes of a lot of contests in their primary election. So this really could be very messy. And a lot of people who don't want to accept a loss 
will have already given themselves an excuse to refuse the outcome. In order for that to be a problem, it would have to be pretty close, wouldn't it? Yes. I would say so. I mean, if we have a blowout on one side, if, um, I mean, my crystal ball broke back in 2016 and it's been out for repairs ever since then. So I'm not predicting outcomes anymore. But if we have a blowout by any one side, um, trying to pretend that the outcome was because of stuffed ballot boxes is going to be very, very hard. But if we have anything close, if we have anything that's contestable, you know, if, if just a few points difference in the vote, it's really, um, going to be relatively easy for somebody who does not want to lose to refuse to accept the outcome. Or if we have another outcome where, say, majority of votes nationally goes for one candidate, the electoral college victory goes to the other candidate, um, something that has happened a few times in recent history, and that's very unpopular with large segments of the population, that's going to set up, um, even though that's constitutionally permissible, that's going to set up the grounds for a contested election, too. That could lead in the out in the aftermath, obviously, to legal protests, but also could lead to street protests. We've seen a lot of street violence this year. There's a lot of civic tension. And this could lead to the sort of problems that we've always assumed were the domain, say, of a Belarus or a Central American banana republic. Um, our country really could follow down that same path. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to remember uh, Donald Trump in 2016 saying the election was rigged, that he won, that there were significant problems with that election too. Uh, so it seems likely to me that Donald Trump will find a way to kvetch about whatever the electoral outcome is, even if he's on the the winning side of it. Um, you you sense that from Democrats as well? I mean, beyond beyond Russia, is that a likely outcome and 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 is it likely in your view that uh Democrats Biden Harris uh Nancy Pelosi and, and other prominent Democrats that they would actually say well we do not accept this outcome the headline grabber right now in terms of um, rejecting the legitimacy of our elections is certainly our president and this is a guy as you point out who complained about the election that he won um, the idea that he's going to easily accept a loss of, at the polls in November seems a bit of a stretch. Uh, the guy is a th he's thin skinned, he's narcissistic, he's got a problem with it. The Democrats have never accepted the legitimacy of Trump's win. Now, that's independent of the fact that he's got some issues that we all might agree upon in terms of his qualities as a person, let alone his qualities as president. They've never accepted um, really the legitimacy of his win. So. And they have talked about Russian interference pretty much nonstop. We had an impeachment based on that that uh, concluded this past, uh, you know, the beginning of this year, right before the pandemic broke. So both sides really have set themselves up um, in a position to object to the outcome of the election if they don't like that outcome. Which is the more probable case? Which side is more likely to reject it? I don't know. I mean, it really is going to depend upon who feels uh, that they're on the short end of the stick come November or probably December, given how long it's probably going to take to count some ballots. Uh, but I'm not really uh, concerned about just the health of one side of, of one of our main political parties. I'm concerned about the overall health of the political process. Americans as a whole right now are not very content with the political process, with democracy. When you ask them about their opinion of the system, large numbers will give a grudging, eh, it's okay. 
And um, just a slightly smaller number will say, no, they don't like the way our democracy is working. There's growing acceptance of the idea of an authoritarian ruler suspending the Constitution, suspending Congress for just a couple of years. And when you ask people questions about um, how they think the system, you know, our problems should be resolved right now, there's growing acceptance of the idea that the military perhaps should step in. And, um, and set things right, whatever that might mean. It's still talking about a, a minority of people feeling that way, but it's a growing minority and a growing discontent with the way democracy works. That's sort of a rot at the core of the system, something that eats away at the traditions that let a democracy work. Two other items. One is that uh, Donald Trump tweeted out, hey, maybe we delay the election until it can be conducted safely. And to the extent Republicans are still paying attention to his Twitter feed, and many uh, abjectly refuse to acknowledge if they read it or not, uh, there it was, it was either silence or shouting, uh, including some prominent voices on the right saying this is absolutely unacceptable for a president to say. The other one is uh, that this notion that the post office uh, which will be charged with carrying uh, a large volume of votes, a larger volume than they would in a normal election year, may be compromised in uh, uh, executing that task. Um, I think it was noted by uh, Nick Gillespie at Reason himself that even if that were the case uh, where every voter were voting by mail, that would account for Roughly all of those ballots would account for about a little less than a third of what the post office carries every day. So what do you what do you make of, of, of those two items? Well, I mean, Trump is in some ways we're lucky with Trump in that because his natural instincts are authoritarian. They're opposed to the normal functioning of a democracy. But he's also lazy. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of hot air to him. If we had a competence strong man. If we had a competent authoritarian in the White House, we'd probably be more, more at risk than we are now. Um, his inclinations lie in that direction. He just doesn't have the, uh, I think, the energy, the competency to push them to where they would go. So yeah, it is outrageous that he would push to, to uh, delay the election. Fortunately, he doesn't have the authority to do that on his own. And either way, um, he it, ceases to be president at noon on January 20th. Whether he likes it or not. So the risk isn't whether he continues to be president. The risk, the risk is whether it gins up his supporters and brings them out into the street. That is the sort of thing that can cause a real problem for us, whatever the, uh, whatever the law has to say about who is actually president come Inauguration Day. And with regard to the post office? Well, with regard to the post office, yes. The post office is semi-competent at the best of times. Now, you can certainly have a functioning mail-in election. Arizona, in the last election, about 80% of the ballots were mailed in. That's normal here. Um, but you have to give yourself time. You have to have competency in doing that. Um, and you have to have a, um, an administrator of the, of the executive branch who's not actively trying to undermine the ability of the post office, well, the semi-ability of the post office to step up and uh, deliver ballots and uh, get them to their uh, end destination in time. Um, yes, can the post office drop the ball on this? Even at the best of times, the post office is perfectly capable of dropping the ball on this. But uh, if Trump actively wants to undermine the ability to, um, to get this done, he, he can. And he can create more grounds for questioning the outcome of the election. J.D. Tuchile is a contributing editor at Reason Magazine. Why shouldn't families be able to choose the education that's best for their children? 
Opponents of school choice have certainly offered many objections, but for decades they've mainly repeated myths either because they didn't know any better or perhaps to protect the government schooling monopoly. In School Choice Myths, Setting the Record Straight on Education Freedom, a new edited volume from the Cato Institute, 14 of the top scholars in education policy debunk a dozen of the most pernicious myths. It's a one-stop guide to everything from the latest research on the effects of school choice on civic engagement to Supreme Court precedent, and it's a must-have for any combatant in the school choice wars or anyone who just wants the best education for their children. School Choice Myths is available at Cato.org and from online retailers nationwide. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.